Hi, everybody. Here we are. Our Pesach episode is finally coming. The reason, really, that we are recording this late, we're late because we we both were doing a lot of our art life. We conceived of this podcast in a time of dormancy, and and th- then we started to you started to you direct you you wrote a play and acted in it, and I went on tour with my band and. We did, yeah. We returned to. I mean, what the question of whether that's work of redemption is really the that's the the heart of the matter. So Passover, it's a very well known holiday. Maybe we can yeah, do let's a, the rundown. Passover is seven to eight days long. Seven days if you're in Israel, and eight if you're not in Israel. It's a time of not eating bread or anything leavened, which is like we don't need to go into what that entails. But in my house, anyway, I just like clean everything out and everything changes and there's contact paper over the over the counters and um, it's this big cleaning moment and we eat all different food and you can't forget. You just don't forget the whole the whole eight days that it's Passover. And the iconic ritual of Passover is the Passover Seder on the first two nights, or just the first night if you're in Israel. And uh, that's got tons of stuff in it. There's eating bitter herbs and eating matzah, and basically the it is a ritualized telling of the Passover Seder, in a book called the Haggadah, and for our podcast, it's also where the we got the four questions concept comes from the Passover Seder. That structure, it's sort of just a in the Seder is just a moment. It's not so structuring, and the questions are not particularly answered. They're sort of like four. They're like here's how you ask a question. Here's some things you might ask questions about. I somebody pointed out they're actually not great questions, and the answers they're not great answers. So it's like. Yeah. It's, it feels like it's more about the activity of asking as part of a structuring element of the Seder and less about these are the four questions. Yeah, um, it's like it's it's like ritualizing. Here's how we ask questions. And they're all about why is why is why are things different tonight? There's a they focus on a sort of like we are jarred out of our routine and we have to it makes us wonder especially from a childlike place or or the children present just like wonder and i just did the seder with a toddler who <sighs> is in the why phase where he asked why about everything and it was it was just awesome to do it with him i mean he was mostly like crawling around at the table and stuff but he was like so fascinated and curious by things being so unusual and it was like that's that's that's, that's the seder 
I mean, it's also, it's, it feels like it's the most, I don't know if it's the most, but it's just like such a discussed holiday because part of the structure of the holiday is to discuss the meaning of the holiday. So it's a, it's been, a, it's been an interesting challenge coming into this episode and thinking about what we want to, how we want to structure our time here, because that's just what we all do in this holiday is talk about its meaning and unpack it and yeah. try and apply it and translate it and, and think about it in the context of our lives and reality. So, yeah, I know we're, we're trying to ask questions that we haven't heard asked every year at the Seder table. Should we start us off with the first question? I would love to. First question is, what does it mean to put a traumatic experience at the center of our collective narrative? Is that what we're doing? So tell us why that's so. Right. So the leaving of Egypt is like more so than any other event like the constitutive event for the Jewish people. It's always referred back to that's like in the 10 commandments, God is like first commandment. I am God who took you out of Egypt. It's sort of continually referenced as the basis for all the commandments of Judaism. It just feels like our origin story as a nation, as a group. That's really a people more than just a family. When we go down to Egypt, it's 70 people. It's it's a family. And it's hundreds of thousands when, when the Hebrews leave Egypt. It's just like marks the beginning of nationhood. And it's majestic in a way, but it's also horrific. This is, this slavery experience was one of murder of babies and forced labor for generations. Maybe this question is really like, do we want that as our identity making event? Like, is it a good thing? What are the good things and bad things about saying my story starts here, horrible things happened, and that's where we begin. And that's where we always remember that we came from. It's complicated to do that. Like, in some ways, it's like, Look how far we've come. Like, aren't we glad we made it out of that? Maybe that made us stronger. Maybe that made us more moral in some in some way we can talk about. But also maybe it's like hammering trauma in at every turn. I think a lot of particularly post-Holocaust Jews, like we like Jewish traumatic history is just like so often referenced and so identity shaping and it sometimes it feels like way too much so like we're focusing so much on the pain in the past and the look what happened to us and uh yeah who is it who says is it daniel boyarn who says that it's the lacrimose calls the lacrimose school of jewish history lacrimose lacrimose what does that word mean that's like 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 crying like teary like oh my goodness then this happened to us and then these people did this and and it's true there's a lot of that in the history but what is it is that is that really what we want to be the constitutive element of who we are i mean and and even thinking about like in terms of trauma and psychology that that's what that's what a experience of trauma is is when it become something that you you cycle back to and repeat and repeat and repeat and you feel that you both sort of feel that this is a cycle that you cannot escape it's a thing that traps you and you also seek i mean this is what i guess like psychoanalytic frameworks think i don't know what other 
schools of psychology think, but like that you in some ways seek to play it out. You you find yourself putting yourself in situations to replay a traumatic experience in the hopes of having a different resolution, but often finding yourself disappointed and sort of like further ensnaring yourself. So I just think that like, especially on a holiday that it's about like returning to a story and replaying a story and what it means to replay a story. That's like, that's deeply a, a trauma pattern of, of behavior. So like, what does it mean to heal from that? What does it mean to break that cycle? I always think about how Art Green in Radical Judaism talks about how we, he argues that we need to shift our central narrative of Judaism away from Exodus and towards creation. He says like, given, and this is back in 2007 or 2008 that he gave those talks. So I don't know what his relationship to that argument is now, but that with climate change and environmental justice, we need to be focusing on the natural world and creation as a whole. For me, it was illuminating to remember that there could be a different narrative, that creation could be the central story of our collective identity well, I mean, b- but the, uh, an obvious difference with the creation versus the Exodus is like creation happened to the whole universe and the Exodus happened to us. I mean, I should really read that Art Green stuff because you've told me about it before. But I don't, is, is, I resist the impulse to move away from Jewish particularity that I think is is sort of folded into that suggestion of his. Like, I be, I mean, we're going to, this is going to get very, we're just going in there, but. Uh, Let's do it. Let's do it. I really am very committed to particularity and universalism being like these two sides of our, coin as jews i kind of think that is almost our main thing to teach the world is that is how a subpopulation can be itself like really really itself and with its own concerns and also not like at war with the rest of the world like a way to throw this into relief i think is to talk about how Judaism seems to ask us to live with our traumatic origin story because it keeps coming up throughout the Torah. You should not oppress the foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. It's, it's some version of that is repeated. They say 36 times in the Bible. It's, it's something around that. Somebody countered it that way, but regardless, it's hammered home incessantly and it's like, as a favorite contemporary rabbi of mine, Rabbi Shai Held, points out, like, you could take your trauma and be like, I don't know, I don't owe anybody anything because do you know what I've been through? I'm just looking out for myself so I don't get hurt again because I'm I've been vulnerable in the past and I'm likely to be vulnerable again. So like I'm looking out for me. We're looking out for us. And that's like in, emphatically not what the bible is telling us to do with our traumatic origin story it is like this story is supposed to give you a moral center that applies to all foreigners and all people who are it asks us to use our our traumatic experience to deeply know 
that we should never traumatize anybody else. And for me, just as a person who's been through suffering in my life, it's a very redemptive idea to me that like that suffering, even as, as, as much as it maybe as it shouldn't have happened in a lot of cases, like it can be some kind of fuel if I if we use it that way, our suffering can be fuel for compassion, and uh, it like allows you a a tool to do somebody else a favor who's going through it. I find that very helpful and illuminating because just I mean I I think that I in the context of that question of particularism versus universality, I think I growing up I always felt deeply uncomfortable with the particularism of. Jewish identity and the idea of a chosen people. I mean, I think that that's maybe a concept we can even interrogate some other time more deeply, but yeah. um, I, I, you know, I have a lot of my family that's not Jewish. I have was like felt sort of alienated from what I was presented with as Jewish community. So it, it was always a thing that I resisted was like wanting to treat Judaism as a, you know, I was always, especially on Passover was always bringing in like secular sources and relating it to, outside thing you know it just was a yeah. it was a time when i was like resisting the particularism really hard and i think hearing you talk about this i'm I, but I've, at the same time i've always been very comfortable with and felt very strengthened by queer particularism and even trans particularism like that experience to me feels very like it gives me a sense of context and self and the specificity and uniqueness of that experience and the diversity within that experience with so many vectors and things, but like, but that the idea that the, to remember that that is a ground for empathy and a ground for a vision of world building that extends beyond that particular community, I think is like the thing that helps me re-enter Jewish particularism in a way that I think I always was uncomfortable with. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like, it's interesting that it's easier. I would, I feel the same way and I kind of always felt the same way. And I, it can be hard to want to lean into Jewish particularism, which often does turn into Jewish xenophobia, especially when we haven't really been oppressed as Jews that much personally in our time. And we have been oppressed as queer people. And, and I don't know, it seems obvious that like focus on queer community, not only is it, help necessary and helpful for our own survival as as queer people but i just think it makes me a more of a feminist more of a concerned citizen in general uh just to be to watch things like legislation or just economic facts crush people that i actually know and and threaten me at times like that makes me more concerned for the poor at large, you know, at not, not less, you know, it's the, yeah. well, then again, it could go the other way. And I think that's part of the, I, the, the guidance that the ritualized telling of the story is trying to give us. And the Bible's continual repetition of this stuff is trying to tell us, use this memory in a, in an outward way. I mean, that's, yeah. Got it. My friend Catherine introduced me to this writer, Annie Rogers. So I got kind of obsessed with who's a 
Lacanian analyst who writes about trauma in young people a lot. And the things that she says about trauma are that like, you really have to believe that the future is unknowable and the future is different from what the present is and what the past has been. And the other thing that she says is that you have to realize that the thing you fear most that you sort of put off into the future as a thing that you're afraid is going to happen is the thing that has already happened. Like that's the reason why you fear it so deeply is because it's already happened to you. And in her vision of what healing from trauma might look like, it is about relationship. It's about like forming new patterns of how to be in the present with people and sort of learning that those things, that relationships can be different from what you've experienced in the past. So I think we, when we bring in trauma, we're also bringing in the possibility of change and the possibility of transformation. So it's not just that we're putting trauma at the center of our narrative. It's that we're putting what seems like a totalizing experience and we're opening up, we're insisting on opening up a door into things being entirely different from that. Um, which is yeah. really the the thing that I think for a traumatized person is the hardest thing to do is to believe that things could ever be, could ever be different. Yeah. And it it is, ugh, I love that. I got to read Annie Rogers. Annie I got to read Annie Rogers. Yeah. yeah I, uh, just before the one thing that I just want to add on the subject of you were strangers in Egypt, so don't oppress a stranger. Maybe the word stranger, gare, might be better translated right now as refugee. And I guess I just was, I keep, I've been thinking about this the whole holiday. God forbid that this is true, but I feel like it's going to be true that the rest of our lives will, there will be a global refugee crisis of uh, one kind or another. And there will be refugees of climate change. There are refugees of war right now. Ukrainian refugees, Syrian refugees, Afghani refugees. There's just, I, I, I just feel this holiday asking us to, as we invoke it again and again, as we say every Shabbat that this Shabbat is a zechel mitzrayim, a remembrance of the going out of Egypt in the in the blessing over the wine on Friday night. I I just want to use that to orient myself around that reality that you and I might become refugees. This is, this stuff is happening. These are concerns that are like, it's, it, it's not, it just feels ever present in social life to me. As like, as that, that does sound like a dark vision of the future or something, but like the welcoming of strangers actually is to me, a vision of a much freer society. A, 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 much better humanity that you could know if you're driven away from home, uh, that it's just like a fundamental human value to, to welcome, to be welcomed. And you can rely on that and that that's enshrined in our holiest texts and the Kiddush every week on Shabbat. I think the exodus from Egypt is like a continual call to welcome foreigners. And and the xenophobia we're talking about that gets that you're in danger of when you get particularist, like it's actually a million miles from the moral center of, of the even the biblical worldview, which like has tons of moral red flags all over it. It's a hundred percent clear to me anyway, like 
xenophobia is is like forbidden on a core values kind of level. Yeah, it turns outward. It has to turn outward. Question two? Question two. Read it. Question two. What vision of freedom does this holiday invite? What we, there are a lot of ways of thinking about freedom. So what vision are we are we moving towards? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've been complaining about freedom for this is my this is my soapboxy thing of like I just think that word has sort of been ruined or that word has been so complicated by the way it gets used in our country right now and in our society. I mean, whether it's freedom a defense of freedom of speech and turning that into being a justification for racism and transphobia or talking about free markets and sort of freedom of 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 quote unquote uh innovation and entrepreneurship as a justification of greed and um inequality like this is a word that is so deeply, deeply framed around individualism in our culture right now. It's about every individual being able to do whatever they want to. And so I have sort of restlessly wanted to find other, what are other words that we can put at the center of this holiday? And redemption is like a word that I've thought about as like a a thing, but, but I think we have to reckon with freedom first. <laughs> um, yeah. What is that? What, what, because there are many versions of freedom and the only version and that individualist vision of freedom isn't the only one. So what's the vision of freedom that this holiday is, is offering us? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't, I'm less inclined than you are maybe to maybe as a writer, maybe as writers, it, it, it bothers us the word freedom. And there are other words in English and in Hebrew, like that might be better. I mean, there's a bunch of words around freedom in Hebrew for the, in this holiday. There's bnei uh, chorin, like children of freedom, and I think that's got a different. Then there's chofshi, which is like totally unencumbered, unobligated, which maybe is like the the right wing uh, American. <laughs> invocation of freedom is really that should be translated as Khofshi. And then there's like a deeper freedom, which is root, which is like some, a, a deep liberation, you know, maybe liberation is the best word for that. But, uh, I think we do, I'm, I'm Pesach, we should watch out for like, we, we just say freedom so many times in public and like, like just be careful with that. Just like talk about what you really mean and what do we really mean i mean part of the central tension that i think you pointed out is that we this whole holiday is built around structure i mean that's what a seder is is an order so there's already sort of an interesting uh it's not a paradox but just like a uh a tension between this holiday about what we talk about as freedom and the idea that we create this very meticulous order for ourselves. Right. If, if we're asking what vision of freedom this holiday offers, it's a vision of freedom that is highly structured. Right. Yeah. I think uh, there's two things, two things about that tension that I want to talk about. One is in the story of going out of Egypt. What is this about situationally? Like we have to get away from the people who are killing us. You know, we have like that. There, there can be no doubt 
that like freedom must involve safety. So we got to get out. It's true that like it is freedom from active oppression, but it was never just about getting out because we want to go somewhere and do something and become something. It's not just let my people go. It's let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. I think that's a thematically is a code really for, well, it, it, no, it is what it is. It is what it says it is. It's like becoming devoted to God, the transcendent power that looks out for the poor and topples tyrants. It's also just like more broadly, freedom involves becoming who you can be. It involves actual possibility. So you're not done once the barriers to possibility have been lifted. You have to go towards those possibilities. And I feel like those, we as queer, as, as trans people really know the, the shades of those different stages. It's not one liberation and done. It's like there's these stages of it. There's an internal part of like lifting the veil and seeing that there could be possibilities. Then there's the possibilities being blocked and then finding a way to unblock those possibilities and then going toward one and seeing what it really is. And that's a, that's a journey toward freedom that does not finish actually. Cause you keep, yeah. you keep going. I mean, you, you, you change, you keep changing. So like freedom to change is really at the core level. What, what I want freedom in this context to mean. The thing that I, that like clicked for me this Pesach that I hadn't quite clicked before is that there are so many obvious ways in which I have always spoke of this holiday as being from a position now of, I am, I am free. I'm thinking, I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to have been enslaved. I'm aware of all the enslavement and oppression that exists in the world around me and how thinking about how I can participate in moving that situation towards liberation. But I think the thing that I, that clicked me this time is like, no, I am right now I am enslaved and I could talk about class privilege and whiteness and all these things as a part of my identity that point to my own freedom in a deep, in a deep sense that is like a deep part of who I am. But what does it mean to say? Like, I don't even know the ways in which my mind and self are hemmed in right now. Like freedom is a thing that I can't even imagine. Like that's really, I mean, this is where we come back to the Aviva Zornberg's argument that like the people at the beginning of Exodus story weren't ready to be redeemed. Like did they, they couldn't even imagine the possibility of leaving Egypt. So like, what is, what is the thing that I can't even imagine for myself in the world that is this vision of redemption that is, is like, I am so far from that vision that I can't even picture it. Like, it's very easy to say, yes, I want peace to arrive in this place i want like economic justice drive in this place these are all things that are real and important and should be fought for but what's the freedom that i am so deep in my own mitzrayim that i can't even picture for myself and for the world yep the challenge here is not trying to remember what it would have felt like to have been enslaved and to be a mitzrayim it's like the challenge is to realize that we are in mitzrayim now yeah and we still have to go on that journey yeah oh i don't know i was going all over the place with with thinking pre pre-Passover and I was listening to like a, a Hasidic podcast and reading different things. And there's this idea um, that like there was a problem for 
God to free the people because what's the, I can't remember what kind of language they use, impure or something. They were on such a low spiritual level, basically. They were so far down and they were worshiping idols and they were completely steeped in Egypt. Essentially, the problem was they weren't worthy of coming out of Egypt. They sort of not, nothing to their credit that God could rely on. So it wasn't time to give the Torah yet and the commandments yet, but before they could leave Egypt, these commandments had to be given. One being slaughter this lamb and put the blood in your doorpost. I mean, I think that's a main one. And um, one was also the, the institution, even before that, the institution of Rosh Chodesh and the, and the calendar. This is going to be the first month for you. So there's these commandments that happen. And then really, just almost mind-blowingly, like the commandment to tell the story of the Exodus year after year in the springtime comes before the Exodus has happened. <laughs> That's it's, incredible. It, it's, it still makes my mind real uh, to think about that because like, actually, there's a sense that like we don't tell the story because it happened. It actually happened in order that we could tell the story. A cultural change was necessary before redemption could be possible. Like a a new way of behaving and thinking, at least a few things had to be instituted before Egypt could be left. Yeah, I guess I'm just like thinking about that. New ways of being that will have to come first before we like get out from under empire's thumb in with in whatever ways we are right now i mean i yes 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 Ooh, i'm like all a tingle i feel like <laughs> i wonder if you've had this experience too that so much in my life i've written it before it happened and i didn't know i was writing it like it's it's kind of it makes me scared sometimes or it's it's like makes me worried to put certain things down on paper because then i because then they're gonna happen like it just <laughs> i just think that i mean and, and the 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 real rational way to explain it is that like there are things that I know that I find ways of investigating in things that I'm creating or working on because there's less stakes around that than around like actually making choices in life. And I haven't quite processed them in my conscious brain yet, but yeah, it really is true that the stories we tell create the stories we tell precede the actual transformation that they narrate. Yes. I think that's an incredible power and responsibility that we have. Like, what does it mean that the vision of freedom that this holiday is offering is a vision of freedom that is driven by the act of narration, driven by the act of storytelling, driven by the act of imposing a framework on the holiday system and the calendar? Like, in some ways, that's like actually sort of the secret hint about how to get towards this freedom is to start telling it, to start narrating it, to start. Start Just, speaking as it speaking it as if it's already happened. Yes, being as if it's true. Yeah, be like be acting free before you're free, and it it resonates with this with this famous statement of the Hebrews after uh, hearing from God, Naaseh v'nishma, we will do, and we will understand, which yeah. in commentaries is like uh, we'll do these things before we know what they mean and by doing them we'll actually 
that's the only way to understand what they mean. And it's it's something that has that that is a thing that has been with me since I was a teenager when I really started to get into Judaism as a thing that I took seriously. Abraham Joshua Heschel writes about taking a leap of action instead of a leap of faith. I mean, he's he writes so beautifully. I'm trying to rem- I read it so many times to do more than you understand in order to understand more than you do. And like this, I, I feel so to be so true, not only about like religious ritual and a spiritual path, but just about everything meaningful in life. You're doing it first before it sinks in the meaning of what you're doing. I mean, I guess that's that thing. Like you can only understand your, your life in retrospect or, understood backwards but has to be lived forwards i forget who heidegger or something yeah it's about act towards it before we feel ready act towards it before we fully understand how to get there yeah i know i mean this that whole that same idea is a dangerous thought because like it could be used in a fascist way to to be like just do what i tell you to do and you will understand later even if it feels wrong to you now and like that could be weaponized harmfully in that in a very pharaoh type of way there's no it's really i don't know if there's an answer to that question but you do have to do something before you know that it's the right thing definitely to do that's like how we make choices you start to do things and hopefully you're doing from them from a place of uh at least feeling self-directed and not coerced i don't know there's a whole other thing about order zigzagging versus versus structure i mean there's so much more to say about that of course but like i don't know it's interesting to me what what how like structure sometimes feels authoritarian to us and chaos feels free Uh, yeah and i just think like it it, the, the what's more often true for the jewish mindset is that like order creates and protects freedom and so i mean it's got to be a moral order it's got to be an ethical system not just order is better than chaos. Chaos is better than evil authoritarian order, for sure. But like, I don't think you can rely on chaos to protect the weak from the powerful. Yeah. I mean, speaking as someone whose astrology is, I have a political astrology, so I have an anarchist moon, I think is... I don't know anything about that. I don't know. I'm just, just to say that I am interested in anarchism and I think there's a lot to learn from that. And I think that, that there is structurelessness of one kind that is like, can lead to vulnerability and, and selfishness and, you know, like to exist in an unstructured space can leave certain people in that space feeling very unsupported and, and alone. Yeah. And I think that there are other forms of structurelessness that are like structured structurelessness, or there's a frame of care that's built around the openness. Yeah, And I think that that, there's a very, very, and I think that there's like a way of creating freedom that, that allows people to feel held by each other and supported and, and to feel that there's, there are other people who have your back. So I don't know, that's what I think anarchist organizing for all the sort of like beautiful tensions in that phrase is about, is about how do you create openness within a structure that allows for care of other people and awareness of awareness of other people's needs. And, and yeah, which w- in a way the Seder is an exemplary, ex- like with that, it's just like, there's an order to everything we're doing tonight, 
there's like points we got to hit. And also anyone can say anything for however long it takes until yeah. dawn. And I, that's, I don't know. I, I, I never thought of that as like a, a certain kind of structured anarchy to the Seder. Okay. Which brings us naturally, I think, to question three. Question three. Food. Why? Why food? <laughs> I mean, this question is really there because we've talked a lot about talking. We've talked a lot about storytelling. We've talked a lot about discussion. This is like, this holiday is a holiday of discussion. If you love text, if you love argument, if you love conversation, you are have come to the right apartment. But there's also so much food in this holiday. And so why, what is that doing as part of this ritual? Yes, food, there's so much food. Not only is, I mean, the central ritual is a big feast. There's a bunch of talking and conceptualizing, but there's also like ritualized eating of karpas, green vegetables, and maror, bitter herbs, matzah. And then there's the whole hyper-detail-oriented fact of the holiday that like no bread in our houses, no leaven. And and the, there's there's the four cups of wine, there's the reclining. There's a lot of very embodied stuff. And I guess we're asking like, how does that relate to the telling of the story, the elaboration on the Exodus? Is it a kind of telling of the story? Does it help it happen? Is it like opposed to it? Sometimes it like grounds me in, especially on the Seder night. I'm just like, we just get into the weeds and we're like, we've just said so much. There's been so much argument and storytelling and conjecture. And there always comes a point where you're like, wait, what are we, what are we talking about? And right about then it's like, here's some bitter herbs taste to this. You might talk yourself in all the talk. You might talk yourself out of feeling like you know what's going on anymore or you know why you're there or you're spiritually connected or whatever you thought you were supposed to feel. And then there is this food experience of tasting this thing, which like I only eat on Passover. Matzah and, I mean, matzah and maror. It's just like whatever we were talking about, that puts me back in on both like sub- logical sub-rational and like super rational level it's like it's a deep experience that goes beyond words which is like queer person as a trans person is embodied knowledge is stuff that like exists percolating in the body before it maybe rises up to the mind in the form of language and it feels nice that this holiday invites that kind of knowing or demands that kind of knowing or reminds us that that kind of knowing is necessary yeah, hell yeah. I, I've talked so much to so many people about like what is gender and I still don't know, but I know what feels better to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like that is actually what matters. That's how you uh I don't know. I mean that you want you want both of those things. I wanna talk about gender forever. I wanna understand on a verbal level different versions of why I might be trans or what exactly I'm doing what it means theoretically. I think that stuff is important, but when the rubber meets the road is like, what am I, how am I going to, how's my body going to be? How am I going to, what am I going to do every morning with my self 
what is it? What it what? That's actually really interesting to think about, like gender as a religious ritual, like acts of gender as like one of those rituals that we're like, well, we, you know, why I know why I'm doing this, but do I really? I don't know. The important thing is I do it. Yeah, I mean, the other the other part of it that I I feel like has been clicking into my brain in the course of sitting with these questions is, mm-hmm. and this is the thing I heard on a Hasidic podcast that like food and eating the act of eating we can think about it in terms of what it means to engage with the material world and the physical world like the that food is both the sort of like fleshiness of our body that needs nutrition that needs sustenance from the physical world we are not just minds we're not just spirits we need to be nourished um and it's also the part of us that is most susceptible to desires cravings hungers like these sort of like how, what are the, all the ways around which we are going to engage with both the need to sustain ourselves as bodies and have a relationship, a healthy relationship to our desires and our cravings? I mean, that's what we were chatting a little bit before about like the linguistic relationship between lechem and milchama. And there's yeah. the relationship between bread and the word for bread and the word for war. Lechem and milchama. That there's like a, this idea of being pressed together. So like in some ways, like, I like thinking about every time you ingest like bread as the basic building block of sustenance, you're engaged in this war between whether you're going to be overtaken by appetite, unthinking consumption, or whether you're going to be overtaken by mindfulness and gratitude and awareness of all the relationships that are a part of allowing huh. this to be to be possible. And I love the way it it just sidesteps a sort of classic problem. I mean, I don't know. Judaism, of course, has this a lot, but like the animal versus godly nature, like which one are you going to go with? There's a temptation, I think, just just in general in human spirituality to be like, either I'm going to be like with God or I'm going to be like steeped in the world. And uh, it's better to be I don't know. You you might come down either way, which is which of those is better. But I think the best thing is when these two get squished together, and and the the animal is sort of redeemed by the angel, or, or, you know, like the the physical is uplifted by the presence of the spiritual. And I think in a very wide ranging way, that's what Judaism tends to want. Is like not only you should love the Lord your God, but you should bind these words on your arm and your head. You know, like, we're going to bring this stuff into contact with your body and bring your body into contact with this stuff and the doorposts of your home. And to me, that has always been what worked most powerfully about, about religious Judaism is like that the mundane everyday stuff makes near constant reference to transcendence and love every time you walk through a door or take a drink of water and that's yeah it's like very present in in Pesach and I mean I my partner and I like really cleaned our house and changed it all over for Passover and taped up drawers of non-Passover dishes and moved everything around and it uh i don't know just being at home this week 
Hmm. I'm in the Exodus story. I'm like in it, you know? And it's like, I think that's the idea. I mean, it's, it's yes, 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 yes. (laughs) That it's, there's, there's a way in which that kind of work can take us to a psychological and spiritual place that we can't just get through sheer will will of sheer, sheer force of thinking or meditating. I mean, the other part of the food stuff that I think is especially present this holiday is that so much of the food is like bitter and not that delectable and like maru and matzah and salt water. And um, I was reading somewhere that, you know, even in that passage that was so central, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate. There's a sort of funny tension of like, this is the bread of suffering that all who are hungry come and eat. Like, come on, come and get it, girls. Like, here's some bread of affliction. Yeah. Like, it seems weird that you would want to invite people to eat of your affliction <laughs> with you. And I wonder what it means to, to like think about what it means to not only ingest suffering, but to have an appetite for it as sort of a part of what it means to be transformed. There's a story of um someone, some rabbi who like, or some I, I don't remember the context of this. There was this person's child did something for which the punishment was stoning. And so the parent was obligated to stone their child, but also was like, I can't stone my child to death. And the solution to this problem was to take the big stone that they were supposed to throw at their child and break it up into little pebbles and every day to throw a little pebble at their child of just like, which is just like a beautiful way of like fulfilling the obligation to stone your child while also being a human being who's, you know. So I, I think that like, what does it mean to say here's the bread of affliction and like to just like break there's so much suffering in the world there's so much pain in the world what does it mean to not avoid it to not say like i can't deal with that or like to not feel afraid of that thing as this this impossibly large bitterness and pain that is going to overtake us one day but to say like i'm going to have a little bit of a taste of a bread of affliction every day i'm going to break the stone down and i'm going to chew it slowly yeah. and i'm going to let it become a part of my body and a part of who i am um it's like in the princess bride when that person eats a little bit of the poison every day so that they become immune to it. Like how do we not only have a healthy relationship with our desires and our hungers and our bodily cravings, but like have like develop a ha- an appetite for and a love for and an appreciation for and a taste for like the painful parts of life. Like just like, how do yeah. we, how do we yeah. chew those and bring those into our bodies and our spirits? Um Yeah. And, right, and that that invitation maybe is like not all who are hungry or in need of bread, but in need of a little, yeah, <laughs> a little surus, a little suffering, and like, it's such an interesting thought to think about how we need it, how we want it, or how it it's it's an I mean, pain is just an essential ingredient in like spiritual development and just personal maturation of any kind i'm just i'm just chewing on this right now um i think it's question four time is it question four time question four speaking of food sort of what are the undigested emotions at play in this holiday anger frustration failure there's a lot of ugly emotion in this holiday there's a lot of feeling that that i feel like is not yeah the sort of exhilaration of crossing into freedom uh, let's and I we just sort of want to like invite those f- yeah. feelings and dynamics into this conversation. Right, we're eating salt water for for tears and bitter herbs for bitterness. And um, why do we 
yeah, why do we want those there? I mean, I think one uh, one aspect of it is that we probably already covered. It's like, I guess in questions one and three, it's like a ritualized internalization of suffering will grow us. We'll just like grow our moral sense and like we want that with the goal being empathy. But, but I think there's another thing I'd like to focus on here, which is just the fury that I feel this holiday really inherently contains as a critique of power, as a rebellion from a not only a society, but a whole world of societies where might makes right, where slaves can only be slaves, where the poor get crushed and killed. And that's just the way the world works. I mean, you reminded us that Moses is a cop killer, essentially, like that that's part of the story. Yeah, that Moses, young Moses sees an an Egyptian taskmaster mercilessly beating a slave and he kills the taskmaster. And that is what makes him have to leave Egypt and become an exile and become this spiritual person who eventually gets, you know, talks to God and can redeem the people. He kills a cop. It's a crucial event of his life. And then the story ends up with thousands of dead cops on the seashore. The militarized state power that's coming to kill the poor people are all dead at the end. And it's almost like, I just, this is the first year I thought about this as like, what a, I don't know, just contrasting that he, that Moses kills an Egyptian cop in self-defense or defense of another person, and it ruins his life. It, it <laughs> mamash completely screws up everything for him, and he has to leave town, and it, it, he, it, he can never come back from that until he's an old man. And then, and then this moment of like the whole, his whole oppressed people sees all the, the whole army dead it's just like it's so intense that the rage fantasy the revenge of it is so intense i think i just want to i just want that aspect of pesach to be talked about always and not just of pesach but like of the identity of of the jewish people that like we are formed in opposition to state-sponsored murder like that is our orienting conflict and that that orientation can conjure up feelings that are ugly like whether it's the rage that leads to that murder of the egyptian or i mean reading the song of the sea again this year it's like that is an ugly that poem is full of this intensity of violence and intensity of of accumulated yeah i mean that revenge fantasy that you're talking about that's those are ugly feelings that i think are like hard i mean the the other if 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 anger, rage is part of our gallery of um, unflattering emotions that are, we're sort of inviting into this holiday, I think failure is another part of it. I mean, in some ways, Moses fails. Like he, in this moment of anger, murders this Egyptian, and it doesn't change anything structurally. And he has to leave his life. It's like a moment of like, yeah. you really fucked up. Yeah, maybe you had a chance. Maybe you had a chance to change something. You were 
a slave who made it to the yeah, royal chambers and and then you just had this moment where you you know quote unquote went too far you should have started a nonprofit and like raised money for yeah worked in the system you know this is i thought that i like credit a conversation with comedian philosopher jewish activist morgan basicus with of like thinking about how much failure is a part of activist work that when you are doing Mm -hmm. freedom work of any kind you fail over and over again and how do we invite that experience into thinking about what freedom and liberation are like what if what if the things that feel like failure well two things one what if the things that feel like failure are actually invite opportunities for transformation in ways that we don't expect like we're looking it's like when you're looking at one goal and you forget that the other goal is actually over here you you see a failure ahead of you and you forget that like it's actually opening up an opportunity for some other transformation to come through and also right you know you can fight and fight for a certain political campaign or like to, to stop the passage of a bill to like prevent a homeless encampment from being cleared and it's going to happen how do you continue to believe that 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 things that it is possible for things to change when you see things fail and get sh- possibilities get shut down over and over again how do you continue to act as if transformation is possible which is an incredibly difficult thing to do and that i think is what's being demanded of us this holiday it's not like every time we want to leave egypt we're going to have a yeah. big old hand and a mighty arm come down from heaven and make it happen like we're going to fail over and over again how do we inhabit that failure and allow that failure to be part of our experience in a way that allows then allows us to believe still in that, in that transformation that it's not only possible, but it's necessary and right. Well, I mean, in some way it takes us back to now 70 Shema, you know, you just, you have to just act and then you'll understand what impact or I, I mean, even if you don't see the impact, don't ask to understand before you're willing to act. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I mean, in the book of Shemot, in the Exodus story, Moses and Aaron, after they sort of do their big dramatic first part of their mission, which is go to Pharaoh and tell him to, God says, let the people go. Pharaoh says, no. Pharaoh says, all you Hebrews are lazy and, and just gives them this impossible work increase. And Moshe goes to God and says, my Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? From the time I came to Pharaoh and to speak in your name, he did evil to this people. But you did not rescue your people. And first of all, it's just wild that Moses feels he can speak this way to God. You know, he's, he, he's saying that something that God did is evil. Uh, he, he associates the word evil twice with, with God's efforts at freeing the people it also just reminds like of some of that stuff like i mean i don't know you and i have been i don't maybe maybe just for me for all our lives like so many people we know we're so invested in progressivism it to i mean to use a word i don't love uh we're invested in like progress we want to see progress we want to be activists and we see things get worse and a lot of us blame ourselves or sort of blame the cause or the people who are working on it. We, we point fingers at each other instead of blaming yeah. the perpetrators of evil. I mean, I, 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 I relate to Moses's questioning of, of God in some ways. Yeah. God allowed all this 
pain to happen. So like there is something legitimate there, but also like, who's the enemy here? Is it really God? Are you going to God and blaming God for this? Or are we working on the perpetrators of evil? You know, uh, and the, the response from God is like, you're about to see what's going to happen. It's going to be spectacular. Just be steadfast in your pursuit of the good. And like, also what else, yeah. the other part of it is like, what else are you going to do? Is, is Moses really suggesting he should give up and go home? Yeah. yeah, I guess like to me that the good side of that demand from Moses is that he's not suggesting that. He's disappointed. And when you're yeah. disappointed, you should ask for even more, not less. Like sharpen the demand when you, after you fail, which I think is what he's doing when he's, when he's confronting God. He's like, we need this. Like, I'm not going to revise what i'm hoping for because it's going poorly i'm going to ask for more when you fail sharpen the demand when you get frustrated ask for more i have one more emotion i want to throw into the mix of our ugly emotion our our basket of deplorables which is shame (laughs) and i think like because we've been talking about moses and moses is like moses is really moses is hustling and trying to get somewhere but i feel like a lot of and the midwives are hustling and in Midrash, like some of the women are making sh- stuff happen. Like, but there's a big part of the story that is like God takes the people out of Egypt, not because they have quote unquote earned it or because they deserve it or because they're ready. Like God just does, it's just the time and it happens. And you've pointed out that like all the people do is cry out. Like it's an expression of pain that initiates this whole narrative. It's not that the people are starting to work towards their own liberation. Like what? Yeah. There's a lot of, sometimes it's like, it can be, one can be filled with shame and embarrassment when you receive a lot that you feel you don't deserve. Like if somebody gives you a gift that you're like, Oh, I Mm. I'm embarrassed that you gave me this gift because like you give me so much or like you gave me this gift and then you gave me this other thing. And then you took me on a trip with you. And then you like, it just is like, it's too, it's Dianu. It's like, there's sort of like a, a little bit of an embarrassment in Dianu of like, oh, you yeah. know what? It would, it would have been nice if we you took me out for dinner that one time, but then you like also gave me this beautiful gap. Like it's just too much. And how do we inhabit that? Yeah. What is it? There's a, there's at the core of that shame. I think is a belief in our own inadequacy and a belief that we don't deserve liberation in a certain way. And it occurred to me that that's why, like, yeah, why do we say God brought us out with a Yad Chazakan is drawn into yeah with a, a mighty hand, a strong hand, and an outstretched arm. We could just say God brought us out. God could have sneezed and brought us out of Egypt. It's because we want to say God wanted us. God like God didn't just do this as as like an easy thing for yeah. God to do. Like oh, I see these people are oppressed. Let me just free them. It's like no, God wanted you. Like you are the person. Yeah, you feel not ready. You feel inadequate. You feel undeserving. But God like looked in your eye and said like you, you're the people I want. And I think that there's something about yeah. what does it mean to receive that when when part of one's own enslavement and part of one's own mitzrayim is to feel inadequate and undeserving, to feel that like I I who am I that yeah. that, that this person should like give me all this? Um, so I think that like shame and and understanding where shame comes yeah. from and what it means to have that internal belief in our own liberation. And then of course, to see that as a, as like a seed of possibility that exists in everyone and in every human being, like, because so much of, so often our shame about ourselves and our belief in our own inadequacy is allowed, what allows us to justify the continued oppression of others. Yeah. I, and, and 
believing that love can be is possible. Like someone can be worthy of love, that we can be worthy of love and that we could deserve it. And believing that you could deserve it is believing that another could deserve it. I mean, I have to talk about, I never really thought about this till this year. The name is Holly Pesach means Passover, right? It means, it means skipping over because God passed over the houses of the Israelites during the 10th plague. And it's just a, it's a, I mean, I don't think I've solved it. It seems profoundly weird. That seems like, is that, why is that the name of the holidays? That, that's not the headline thing. That's an important thing that happens. But why is that skipping over so central? And uh, something I, I heard from uh, one of these Hasidic podcasts is, um, and, I, and I've heard this before, actually. First of all, that unworthiness that like we're on such a, they were on such a low spiritual level. They, they sort of didn't deserve to be redeemed. And so there's this idea that God jumped over all the steps and skipped all the steps that they would have to go through for the sort of psychic and spiritual awakening that would make them worthy of redemption, would make redemption possible. You know, you can think of that as, as some kind of, mystical thing or you could think of it as like well you know people should get free by by organizing and by acting together and proactive and being into it not just waiting for a miracle but like getting themselves free right but in this situation that was not possible everything just all those steps had to be skipped over and then also to bring it right back to shame and love it gets connected to the Song of Songs verse about leaping over the hills, you know, which here comes my lover, just like Pesach, jumping over hills, jumping the walls and the mountains to get to me. And it's like, that is what love is. You just, you pass over all these things about the person that you love that they think makes them unworthy of your love. And you're like, I don't care about that at all. That's not what this is about. I love you. It's not about you being worthy, and it's not it's not about me being worthy of you loving me. Love just jumps over all of those things in joy and in this like impossible. It shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be possible to love another person, and yet it is. And that's like that's maybe the that's maybe the oh that's a kernel of his holiday I just never never had. I didn't know that connection. I love that so much. I also love that we yeah we started this question talking about ugly feelings and like when you dig into all of them, what do you find at the middle? This love. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I feel like we've gone from degradation to praise from servitude to freedom. Well, in every generation, (laughs) we could, we could, we could do an episode a week about this, you know? Um, There's so much to say. Whoever, elaborates on the story of going out of Egypt is praiseworthy. And then with yeah. that spirit, you should send us an email. <laughs> two queers, four questions at gmail.com to n- number two, number four. We'll answer your questions. We'll uh, salt your horseradish. Thanks everybody.